if you're ready, I got the record button going. I'll basically count it down, lead you in. What's your? What would you say your current title is? Do you have a title? Do you want me to use your current title or just say retired fellow, retired supervisory special agent Ed Parmalee? Yeah, well, that's fine because okay. right now I'm you know part time at BlackRock Strategy okay. as the director of special cyber programs, and then gotcha. my LLC. So yeah. eh, the first part is fine. We'll just use the first part. Yeah, so, we'll go from there. And and yeah. and, and post bureau entrepreneur. How's that sound? Yeah. I like that. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Here we go. In three, two, one. Well, I want to welcome on to the Cyber Guy podcast, fellow FBI retired supervisory special agent Ed Parmalee and current private sector entrepreneur. Ed, thanks for taking the time and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Darren. Thank you very much for having me. This is great. So uh, you are, we should have done this since you're also a fellow Huntsvillian. We could have done this in person, but I didn't think about that in time. But oh, well, that's okay. We don't. You know, you you don't, you don't have your your uh, camera on, so you're only looking at my ugly face. I'm not looking at uh, at yours, so it's fair enough. But we both you know we both have nice goatees and stuff like that. So is your still you're still a full beard? Are you now with the goatee? I'm still a full, full beard. beard. It's, there's a lot of salt and pepper in there. I can turn my <laughs> camera on. You don't have you don't have to. It's okay. Yeah. I'm just I'm not radio record, face. Not recording that part of it anyway, so it's okay. There, there, okay. There's no video recording here. So All let's right. talk about the you know obviously one of the things I'm sure you had the same same. Um, experience but when you're in the bureau the first thing everybody talks two questions almost everyone always asks you is what did you do before the view and what made you want to decide to become an agent yeah no that is definitely a very common question uh, before the fbi i was in the army as an active duty soldier doing uh i was stationed in fort belvoir virginia for three years and then i was in albuquerque new mexico at a joint command at Kirtland Air Force Base for my last three years. And that was circa 1993 to 1999. Um, I was a computer guy, if you will, in the Army. Trained as a programmer, but I was never very good at it. So I ended up kind of morphing into more of a midline supervisor slash computer help desk non-commissioned officer. Um, it was good work. I learned a lot. But the... The, the gist behind me going in the FBI was I was close to the end of my enlistment and it was, you know, make a decision time. Do I re-up for another however many years or do I transition to another career? Uh, my father is a retired agent as well. So it was, you know, sort of ingrained in our household growing up. We... It was my sister and my brother and I were all, you know, FBI kids, if you will. So we had a very unique upbringing, I think, um, following the rules, that kind of thing. Don't talk about what dad did for a living kind of thing. Um, but it was it was um, it was actually at, at the time my wife at the time pushed me to uh, to, to at least take the test, the initial phase one test. And I was like. I wasn't sure if I if I was really qualified to do that. Uh, I did not have an advanced degree, and um, she's like, "What's the big deal? Take the test. If you don't take it, I mean, if you if you don't take it, you're going to be having a lot of regret years down the road." Okay, let me stop. So, let, me stop let, me, let me stop you right there. What was your? So you had a basic. You had it. Had to have at least a bachelor's degree. So what was that in? Yes, my bachelor's degree was in criminal justice. Okay, gotcha. And so 
criminal justice and six years, seven years in the army. Gotcha. Go ahead. Army, correct. Yep. Yeah. So I went and took the test with, uh, you know, I prepped for it. Like they give back then, they gave you a prep book and you had a little test and I mean, a little a study guide essentially with practice tests similar to a really light grade SAT or ACT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I did my due diligence and my, and I practiced and I studied and I went and took the test, but I had absolutely no expectations. Um, I was not wrapped around the axle about it. So I, that may be why I, I, <clears throat> I made it through because I was so, um, relaxed about it. It was, uh, it was, it was a decent test. It was hard, but, um, you know, I obviously passed phase one and was invited back to phase two and I just kept going little by little. And, um, I got my letter. I was already out of the military by then, but I got my letter, invited me to the Academy in March of 2000 and off I went. How long was your period between phase one and phase two? It was around eight months. Mm -hmm. So the total process was probably from day one test to I'm in the academy was around 14 months. That's good. That's a good, good. So what, what class were you? Oh, 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 what? Seven. Oh, oh, Double seven. Seven. Double, oh very nice. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. I, I know, was right? 99, I was 99, <laughs> 19 and we were there during Y2K. So I remember very distinctly at the academy driving around in a bucar car at midnight to from midnight to eight in case anyone decided to breach Quantico Marine base and get that deep into FBI headquarters. Basically, we played hide and seek with our cars and chase deer. That's what we did during that time was. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would have been, gosh, if they can get that deep into Quantico, then yeah. maybe they deserve it. And, and the, <laughs> the funny thing is, and this, so I should, I should preface, and I preface this a little earlier. A lot of this conversation to be about FBI headquarter stuff. And, and really Quantico is kind of like headquarters. There's headquarter entities there. That's where you go for, for academy training. But we, the, the assistant director of the training division at the time came to talk about how we would be, some of us would be volunteering to do this 24 hour security around the base. They, they had FBI police, but apparently that wasn't enough. They needed new agent trainees with their blue handle gun, red handle gun, excuse me, red handle guns to drive around in case anybody shows up. So someone said, are you arming us? And they said, no, we're not giving you any live ammunition or anything. And so, so what do we do? What do we do if we find someone? They're like, well, go up and ask them what they're doing there. <laughs> that sounds like a total FBI thing. <laughs> exactly. That's an assistant director. That is an assistant director. And we'll get more into that going forward. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I was just curious. So I was curious. So, okay. So you got to the Academy 13 months. Um, and how did you find it? So, so that's a, this is an interesting question that I've not asked anybody before. You'd be the first person to ask this question because you're a former military guy. So you're going through from, from army boot camp to FBI, uh, Academy. What's the, how, how would you rate the two or compare the two, compare, compare and contrast the two. Yeah, it's not difficult. I mean, I didn't find it to be difficult, especially comparing, you know, to, to boot camp. Um, I used to joke and say that the FBI Academy was like college, but there was no alcohol. <laughs> well, yeah. So, until you graduate, then you can go to the, the, um, right. Then you can go, you can go to the boardroom, board yes. too, but right. it was like college with no alcohol and you really couldn't leave campus at least for a little while, but mm-hmm. uh, eventually, but you trickle off and come back, but it's, you know, it was, um, <clears throat> we had a really good class. We're real tight knit. We, we actually, all of us still email each other at least yearly at on our, on our anniversary. Um, and we, we were not a big class. I think there was maybe 27 total. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
it was it was um it was not difficult the physical fitness portion of it was um fairly simple for me just coming off the army um the academic portion i was a little nervous about i never was really a strong student but um i handled it with no problem because there's really quite frankly nothing else to do when you're there is after you're done with all your assignments for the day and all your extracurricular activities in the evening if there are any um there really is nothing else to do except study or go over your book and or have group sessions with your classmates in the dorm or in the library or down in the common area or anywhere else. So, um, you know, you learn by a slow osmosis, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you get to practice all your physical, uh, the um, defensive tactics and practice handcuffing right. if you're not used to it, all that kind of stuff. So what, um, well, here, I'm going to ask another side question. Just This is, this is an FBI Academy inside joke, but do you still drool when you smell gun cleaner, gun cleaning, solution <laughs> that is a very unique smell and yes it, it, it as you know smells are, are a very powerful memory anchor and every time even to this day i smell hops uh uh gun cleaning fluid it you cannot help but think about the academy in some level whether it's in the armory or whether it's in the shooting range or the gun cleaning room you, you just can't help but think about it and um Ironically, the my parents don't live far from the academy, so mm -hmm. I was able to, um, <clears throat> as a child, when my father took classes at the academy, when he was in, he was in the Washington field office for 25 plus years, and he occasionally took classes at, at Quantico Academy, and we would go down to visit him as, uh, you know, as little kids, we go down and visit them, and every well, every so often, we go watch a movie in the forum or or in the big auditorium um, where we had our graduation ceremony, the big auditorium. Oh, yeah. As if it, so, for those folks who don't know or never been there, um, the auditorium is um, from floor to ceiling, and on the ceiling is is a is a particular kind of wood. I don't know what kind of wood it is, mm -hmm. but it has a very very distinct smell. It's not a bad smell, but it's just a smell of wood. And and I still, to this day, if I smell that kind of wood, I always go right back to the academy in the auditorium in my mind. And it's um, it was a good experience, that's for sure. And when I say drool, I mean, because for us, we seem to always have firearms right before lunch. So you'd clean your gun and right. then you'd go eat lunch. So when you start, when you smelled the, smelled the cleaning solution, it was time to eat. So that's, that's all we always drool. Um, now, so as a youngster, you didn't walk on the blue carpet when you were going into the uh, auditorium, did you? Oh, no. No, we, well, we, no. <laughs> it was walk down the sides. Um, and mm -hmm. that was back in the, I mean, we're talking. Oh, yeah. Eight, eight, late 80s. 70s, yeah, early 80s. Sure. And <clears throat> what is now the reception area for um, post-graduation um, ceremony used to be the hall of honor mm -hmm. where they had the big fountain in there and all the, all the pictures, the martyr pictures and all the awards and um, post the, the medals and the um, uh, badges. So it was in the little chapels down there. So we would go down and, and, you know, my father was very serious about going into that area and we were very respectful of, um, of the, the environment and i do remember my little brother at the time was he was young he was probably maybe six uh 
and he ran to the fountain to play in the water. And my, <laughs> my dad was going to turn him inside out because he, he explained to us why that was not appropriate and, and, and what had happened here and why this, why that room was very important to the FBI and how, um, we should be respectful to the agents that had lost their lives in the line of duty. Right. So it was, that was a very strong poignant moment for me. Um, and it actually, so ironically, I've never told anybody this, but at my graduate, after my graduation, our, our, you know, cake ceremony, if you will, was down in that area. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling conflicted because I was very happy to be graduating and um, I was excited to get on with my career, but I was also very upset <laughs> internally that we were in that room having a party and people were just kind of milling around. And yeah, by that time they had moved to the Hall of Honor elsewhere and there was, yeah. no, there was no fountain, but it was, um, I remember asking my dad um, how he felt about being in that room <laughs> and it not being a very, like a sanctuary almost, but right. it, was, uh, it was funny. So your dad spent all of his career in WFL? No, his first his first year was in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And then he moved he moved to WFO, um, where he was moved to WFO, and we grew up in the Woodbridge Dale City area. Mm -hmm. So you didn't get to ex so, you, you didn't experience a whole lot of traveling around then. No, I, we were lucky. Um, he ended up he he got his OP a couple times uh, to New Haven because my both my parents are from New England. And he turned them down because he really liked what he was doing in um, in Washington field office. And um, we were, of course, by that time, pretty ingrained in the in the community. And all us kids were in school, and um, we were we were happy there. So my parents opted to just keep declining the 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 office of preference mm -hmm. uh, assignment, and we stayed there. So yeah, he was there for twenty, I think, about twenty five years, and then moved. To, to Quantico at the engineering research facility for his oh, last. Very nice. Uh, yeah. So, so you graduate, where'd you, what was your first office? What'd you work? Did you move around before you went to headquarters or go ahead? No, I, um, <clears throat> I was in the Jackson, Mississippi field office for 12 years. I got there in, in July of 2000. And of course, um, I was, told I was hired from my computer background in the army and they immediately put me on a domestic terrorism squad. Sounds right. And I chased, I, I chased, uh, you know, domestic terrorism guys around looking for the KKK and the Aryan brotherhood and all those, um, <laughs> those types of uh, groups. So yeah. that was interesting. That was a good way for me to cut my teeth on using sources and, um, staying in the the bounds of the constitution because it, that's it's a very fine line between what we're permitted to do investigative authority wise and what the constitution allows for free speech right especially in those cases because i remember i was in inspection division in 2013 and they were still dealing with how do you right. initiate these cases kind of thing so again do you have any interesting case stories of those type of cases you don't have to get specifics or anything like that but any there i got to believe there's always like no one will believe this ever happened kind of thing with those cases. Um, I, I don't recall anything like that. There was, so Mississippi was, it was a unique environment. There's a lot of old, um, we used old KKK members there that just, mm. they don't really, as far as like being uber militant yeah. and 
and operational it was mostly uh the occasional social media well back then it was it was more of just you know a newspaper thing or someone just yelling or putting a poster on the side of the road but it was um you know there's was, there's was protests or counter protests for specific events in the state or but it was just mainly a lot of uh old drunk guys complaining <laughs> about how things used to be versus where they are and but you know there was an occasional <clears throat> um political event that was that would drive you know a uh, a a right-wing response from these guys and it would uh or people i shouldn't say guys specifically but people so there's a lot of uh, a lot of surveillances a lot of running uh sources in and out of the area or in these groups or tangential to the groups but um uh, there, there was a couple of um, <clears throat> there was a threat against the the then the state attorney general at the time because he was um, he was he was one of the rare few that liked to kind of shake up the establishment when he was um, attorney general and you know some of the, uh, the some of the um, skinhead groups did not appreciate that so mm. uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of those worked and so when those kind of threats come in those are a stop what you're doing jump on it figure out if there's a viable threat where is that threat coming from and get ahead of it and figure out where they are and stop them so it's a uh it's a thousand miles an hour for as long as it takes to to, to end the threat right they didn't so 9-11 they didn't move you to I, international terrorism at all they kept you on domestic terrorism no i I bumped over to, um, by that time I was on the violent crime squad oh, okay. and it was sort of a, and it was the internet was sort of a new thing for the bureau. So they didn't really have anything. They, the internet fraud, you know, that was an all inclusive, sure. if it had a computer attached to it, it automatically got labeled with internet fraud. <laughs> right. And, I, and at the time I was really the only one in the office who had any sort of understate understanding of computers just coming off the army. So I was sort of a hybrid violent crimes and internet fraud squad of one, so to speak. Right. You were the cyber guy. You were the cyber guy for Jackson is what you're saying. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And I remember, that didn't last I remember for years, they only had like two cyber agents right. for the whole time, for a long time, long period of time, just because right. it's such a small, is it the smallest? No, it's, it's near the smallest divisions. It's near the smallest, right? Yeah. Like there with Mobile and I mean Birmingham was fifty out of fifty six. So you know, anywho. So right. so did you ever get to be just cyber in Jackson for so twelve years? Yes, there. eventually. Yeah. Yes, eventually it um it grew to the point where and the bureau was was beginning to change with the fact that the internet was was not going anywhere and it was expanding and the crimes were um pervasive enough so they started breaking off an understanding okay we have to have a dedicated cyber squad mm -hmm. and that was eventually so but the problem there was okay we have to have a cyber squad we have to have cyber people but it didn't really fit nicely into the violent crime squad it didn't really fit nicely into the white collar squad it didn't really fit nicely into the international crimes squad it didn't really fit into the you know the foreign counterintelligence squad so it was it was bounced around a good bit for a while i was on a white collar then we got moved over back over to the violent crimes and then we got moved to the um the the fci the foreign counterintelligence squad because 
well, they use a lot of computers because they're spies. So yeah, okay, <laughs> let's put it over there for a while. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it, it grew to the point where it was a dedicated cyber squad. And my guess is and, the supervisor you had as you were jumping around didn't know what to do with you or didn't know how to do your cases or anything like that. They did not. Mm-hmm. And it was and it was changing the the, the requirements for the cases and, and some of the um, the investigative authorities were constantly changing. So it was more... I remember a supervisor telling me, he goes, I don't know what this is, but I, I trust that you know what you're doing. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did an SAC like that too. That's always good times. How about your executive manager? Let's go. So let's, let's go. So beyond, so the SSA didn't, until you got a cyber SSA, I assume you got one eventually, but what about your ASAC and SACs? Were they even, did you have any that came through that were at least somewhat Interested, I don't say interested, but somewhat had an had an idea of what was going on in the cyber world, or was they were they just kind of not really there either. Um. So initially, no, but we did get to the point where um, I worked heavily with the state attorney general's office, and they had a cyber uh, squad, if you will. There was maybe three investigators and a forensics guy. Mm-hmm or two and um, we partnered up with them and we established the first cybercrime task force in the state of Mississippi. Oh, good. And it was um, Scott Augenbaum actually was the program manager at headquarters and he helped fund, helped mm-hmm. me get the funding to establish the cybercrime task force. And, um, but the SAC at the time, he recognized that it, the internet wasn't going to go anywhere and cyber was becoming a thing. And I remember him telling me that it was, he's like, I don't really fully understand, but I know it's not going away and it's only going to get bigger. So, you know, if you think that we need to establish a cybercrime task force here, you have my blessing. And so we did, and we did a, we did a, we did it pretty quickly. And um, it was, it was successful. Soon after it was established and up and running, I, I moved on to another uh, genre of my career, but it was, um, to my understanding, it's still in effect today. That's great. And I think uh, one of your cyber supervisors was Johnny Sharp, wasn't he? He. Or no, he was a CI, CI and cyber. He do have both at some point. He was, he was the CI. He might've been the, I don't yeah, I think because, and here's the reason. I, so he was my SAC in Birmingham when I retired. Really good guy. I know he became ASAC in Jackson, but I know that when I was in Cleveland as a supervisor, he was he was one of the cyber supervisors. He at least managed or oversaw a group of cyber agents because we remember, progr- do you remember Program in a Box? Does that ring a bell? It does not. You're better off that it doesn't. Trust me, you're, you're not knowing what that is, is is good for you. But it was basically this headquarter program as, how, as far as how they dealt with resources and stuff like that. So I had a group of under uh, an underground email group of, of supervisors that we would help each other out with these things because headquarters could never give us an answer. But let's with that, let's let's get to headquarters. So 12 years, I assume that's when you went to headquarters at 12 years. Right. I went up there for an 18 month TDY. Mm-hmm. Um, fully intended to go back to Mississippi. Um, my kids at the time were, were knocking on high school, late mm-hmm. middle school. And, um, you know, we wanted to go back, but I, I wanted to, I knew I needed to try something different. And, um, I, I saw <clears throat> when I was in Jackson, I saw, um, supervisors that came in from headquarters versus supervisors that never went to headquarters. And there was a very, very distinct difference in their management style, their access to information 
and access to resources. Mm-hmm. The ones from that had done their time in Hoover were were much better at knowing um, how to access resources in headquarters. They knew if they didn't know somebody directly, they knew somebody who knew somebody who can who can help get an answer, and they knew how to navigate the red tape way way faster right. than somebody who did not. Mm-hmm. So where'd you go? So, where yeah, where did you up, go to work? I went up to, um, I went to counterterrorism division at the national joint terrorism task force, uh, and at LX one in uh, McLean. And it was, um, it was a really good, uh, it was a really good experience and really good way for me to cut my teeth on the headquarters um, mm-hmm. element. Cause counterterrorism division was, is, is high operational tempo all the time. So there was always something to do always something to see and in the national joint terrorism task force environment there was 49 at the time there was 49 other government agencies in there and they ranged from other federal agencies to the local like washington um washington dc metro police had a representative there amtrak secure or amtrak police had a representative there um the u.s capitol the pentagon force protection army cid Navy, Air Force, everybody was there. Navy, excuse me, Navy was there. Um, Department of State. So it was a very unique environment, and you could see how the other agencies do their intel sharing in their own agency and outside their own agency. And whenever something happened in the news, especially a violent incident, a shooting incident, or otherwise, it was almost always came through our shop. Mm. So, um, I can't remember the man's name. Dorn, I believe. He was the shooter in Colorado, Denver area. He went on a shooting rampage for a while. And um, one of the first phone calls that the um, command post made was to the National Joint Terrorism Task Force and said, hey, we got rumor that this guy was former military. Can you confirm and can you access records to tell us what his capabilities are? In about two hours, we had the information for him. That's and great. that helped them tremendously because he was a dangerous man. Mm-hmm. He knew his weapons and he knew his explosives. And they were able to adjust their operations against him to meet his meet the potential threat. Was he the one that he wasn't the one that drove to New York City, was he? I don't I don't remember him going to New York. I thought okay. he was in the the Denver. Well, there was a guy from Denver who who drove to New York as allegedly to do something, but that's a that's a side. That's a we can talk about that another time. But so that's an that's an interesting point about headquarters. You were at LX One, which is a separate building. That just what so when you know if you are you know non FBI related, you probably think of FBI headquarters as the Hoover Building, the big ugly building in downtown DC. Right. But in, in reality, it's a host of buildings all over the National Capital Region. Um, when I was there, I worked at Hoover for the first couple months and then we moved to a new facility called Patriots Plaza, which was where they put cyber and and a bunch of other headquarter components. I think there's three buildings there now. It's a huge complex. And now most of cyber division is out in Chantilly. Uh, I think they're still there. I don't think they've moved, but uh, yep. Uh, Mission Ridge, I think is the name of the building. Uh, and you were at Elks one and then you have, what else we got uh, down there? I mean, there's all stuff everywhere, but. Um, what made you want to go there versus an operational or more support entity, say, in Quantico or in Hoover itself? What was the draw to that particular job posting? Because that's, that's the thing with, like, when you get to a certain point in your career, you want to do something, like you're saying, you want to do something different. And you want to, I, I'm assuming you went there with the idea, I want to, who can I help the best, the most? That's everybody's initial 
I want to go help people. I want to try to make things better. So what was, what was the draw to that job at LX one? So that, that draw was just that, you know, I had never worked in that level of operational tempo mm -hmm. and um, a, a good agent friend of mine was already there in that unit. And he was always telling me stories. Uh, if you don't know, Chris Hacker yeah, was Chris, there. Good friend of mine, yeah. So Chris, Chris and I were in Jackson together for many years and he, he matriculated up to LX one or NJTTF and, you know, <clears throat> just through our, you know, touch-based conversations he was telling me all about it and you know the more he, the more i heard the more i was interested in um it was it was uh it was a great man it was a really good work mm -hmm. that's good when it's satisfying it's great when it's, did you get travel a lot um there was an occasional travel here and there you know we went out to colorado once to meet with um the the commanding general out there to enhance our presence there in intelligence sharing um we ended up going down to Fort Rucker, ironically, mm -hmm. at one point to um, to do the same thing. We had a we had a potential threat down there as well, so it was a, a double duty. But the travel wasn't too too bad. The most <laughs> most of the travel was in the the national capital region, going to and from the Capitol or Hoover Building, or occasionally I got to go to the White House for a mm -hmm. briefing or two. Spent a lot of time with the National Security Council, which is in the building adjacent to the White House at the Executive Office Building. So seeing where that, seeing that, that environment is also extremely um, surreal as well. When you walk into the White House, you you have to stop sometimes and look around and go like, "Oh, I'm really in the White House." <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty unique experience, and um, it's not something I had to remind myself often that. Or I reminded myself often that you know most people don't get to do this, right? So sure. it was well, even uh, going even going in the Hoover Building is yeah, is, is still, you know, it was sadly, surreal. Every sorry, time. general public, but the Hoover Building is not that attractive on the inside <laughs> either. No, but, but still interesting. Yeah, it, it's getting better, but um, it's you know it is what it is. And now, of course, they're moving. They've they've built they're building the the headquarters here in Huntsville. Yep, that is going to um, help alleviate some of the pressures of the of the personnel in hoover but it um the jacob hoover building has come a long way in the last probably decade or so it used to be this it was a really depressing kind of place but it's been it's been um it's gotten a pretty significant internal facelift sure got starbucks with, got starbucks at the entrance got a starbucks can't beat that right but, <laughs> hey i guess um, i don't drink coffee so it was no good for me but so so how did you find the leadership at at in the in the section you were in was did you have good section chiefs good unit chiefs good assistant directors did they come and go how how many of them did you have all that kind of stuff because i mean the headquarters regardless of where you're at whether you're at hoover or somewhere else mm -hmm. is a constant ro rotating door or revolving door so how did you find right. that that experience dealing with the constant change in turner leadership that was that was consistent you know they come in they they check their block and they they move on um there was good ones and then there were bad ones just like anywhere else you know mm -hmm. um for the most part i had good leadership they wanted to do the right thing um and they they there's a lot of open discussion about how to protect the american public and what do we need to do to ensure nobody dies because you know we used to 
the, the battle rhythm, if you will, in, in the counterterrorism division was if you don't answer the phone, somebody dies. Mm-hmm. Or there's no, oh, I'll get to that on Monday when it's a Friday afternoon. It's no, 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 no. Someone's going to die or potentially die if you don't get on this right away. So there was a, uh, there was a very profound sense of urgency and um, mission success was failure was not an option. Sure. Did, so, 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 the, so your 18 months come, you get to the end of your 18 months. Were you ready to get out at the time? Um, what'd you do at the end of it? Did you stay at headquarters? Did you go somewhere else? How did that work out? So we stayed, we stayed in, um, it was, it was sort of a, it was a bittersweet decision because it was, it was not easy to not come back to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, but you know, we had a lot of conversations with the family and, um, at the time we were living in, in, in Ashburn, Virginia, which is, uh, it's in Loudoun County. Nice place. We had a lot of friends up there and, you know, the school that my kids were going to was fantastic. It was as nice as any community college in, in Mississippi. <laughs> so, um, you know, we opted to stay and, um, I went from the counterterrorism. I stayed there another probably year. And I pivoted to cyber division outside uh, when I left counterterrorism division. My first assignment in, in the cyber division was in the Asia operations unit. And that was, you know, as a program manager dealing with Asia based threats in whatever capacity that may be, I was assigned a few <clears throat> up to five threat sets. And there was, it was, uh, it was basically the, the head chessboard shuffler mm-hmm. you know working with the field offices to get them the assets they need the budget they need and the resources they need working with um the foreign intelligence agencies to help push and pull information as best we could working on um the Pfizer warrants and getting them in place and making sure all the boxes are checked properly and um information uh, starts to flow into the field office so it's um it was a lot of a um, lot of coordinating a lot of coordinating with with internal and external agencies. Did you get to go to the Pfizer court? I did not. I got close once, but I did not. Oh, that's too bad. Well, yeah. no, I think that's a good thing. That way, no no Pfizer judge can ever have to yell at you because you did something yeah. wrong. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's was, a plus there. Did you get to I'm at least travel? Did you get to travel in the cyber division? Um. So not in Asia ops, but I. I was there for about a year then I jumped over to the outreach section and there was where I, I stayed there the longest. I was there probably five and a half years. Okay. And it was, um, that was uh, really good work because it was all about threat briefings and creating, enhancing um, existing, creating new partnerships and en- enhancing existing relationships with a variety of entities, whether it's public or private or other government agencies. And that involved a lot of travel inside the national capital region to visit the um, appropriate agencies and or um, a lot of the private industry, like um, the the airline industry, for by example, has a very robust intelligence program. And they have, um, uh, they have a couple of different um, pipes of information, if you will, and they call them ISACs. It's an information sharing and analysis center. Mm-hmm. And they have in there, uh, they have an aviation ISAC, which is the gold standard that in the financial industry, ISAC is probably the gold standards when it comes to information gathering and dissemination to their own people and working with other government agencies. 
Um, but the auto ISAC also had a rather robust um, agency or ISAC as well. And um, they, that was all about giving briefings to the appropriate um, agency at their request. So I had transportation in the chemical industry and I was, I was creating partnerships in those, in those veins. So if it rolled, floated, flew, I was, or it was on a rail, I was, trying to make as many relationships as I could. And we would push Intel to them as much as we possibly could. We really found a way to yes, as much as we could. The constitution, the statutory authorities and the internal FBI policies prohibited us sometimes to, to push information to a specific agency and or pull information from them. But we, we did a very good job in my opinion, of course, <laughs> finding the way to yes and pushing the line as far as we could without violating the rules and um, it it was great. I did a lot of travel there. I traveled um, throughout the country, of course, throughout the national capital region, and it was um, it was really it was really good work. It was really fun work, and um, and it made a difference because a lot of times you give a threat briefing to a a group of let's say auto dealerships. So, you know, auto dealerships have these conferences once or twice a year and they range in size, but the, the big one is the national, the NADA, mm -hmm. National Auto Dealer Association. They have a big conference every year and it's humongous. And, you know, we would give threat briefings to um, the small breakout groups and a car dealership is essentially a, a small bank, right? Sure. There's yep. a lot of money. Mm -hmm flowing yep. in and out of there. So, you know, we're talking to them about, you know, keeping their, their network secure and how they can go about protecting their data and protecting their information from getting out or being compromised or, or them getting fished or gosh, God forbid, you know, ransomware hits their system. And we were telling them about these threats that are out there about the phishing, about the ransomware, about any given malware at any point on the internet. Right. So just to watch them go have that, Oh my gosh moment and mm -hmm. their eyes are as big as dinner plates and like what do i do yep so that was really and you know you put them in touch with the local field office where they're at and you know you they develop that relationship from there and you know they begin to get more regular intelligence to help them help themselves and that was that was very important to me to have that sort of mission mindset where the information that the fbi teaches me and the training they give me and all the money they pumped into me as an agent, I'm able to give that back to a pretty high degree, give that back to the community writ large, because, you know, most of the time it's, you get your training, you get your experiences and you're doing investigations and you don't get to go out and tell anybody really what you're doing or why right. you're doing it mm -hmm. because you're just going after the bad guy. Right. Yeah. But this is one of those moments where you can leverage all of that experience and training and you can give that back to the taxpayers and help them help themselves. And it was, it was, it was really rewarding and I, I enjoyed it. And I think that's great. Cause that's really, you got a lot of companies that just think that's, you know, I don't know anything about it, so it's probably nothing I should worry about. If I don't know anything about it, it's probably not going to. It's, it's the. Um, Do you ever read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. Okay. Well, there's a there's a point in there where they're they're, they're talking. It's a satirical book, but they're talking about this monster on this planet, and they say if you put a towel over your head, it thinks it can't see you because you can't see it. 
So it's one of those things where if they don't know it exists, then it must not going to be happening to me kind of thing. So that's, and that's, and I found same thing for me. I found the most rewarding thing for me was doing the outreach and talking to to companies and entities and groups and saying, here's, here's what the bad guys are doing. And here's how you can protect yourself from doing. I think we're both, you know, we're trying to still do that now in our careers here. That's why I do this podcast to try to talk about all of those things. So did you ever become a unit chief or anything like that? Did you ever move up to run your own unit? I, I, didn't take a 15 spot, but I was acting unit chief for a long time on, on more than one occasion, mm-hmm. eight, 10 months in some instances and a year for another. But it wow. was, um, yeah, I was acting unit chief one day and the real unit chief decided to have a baby. And so <laughs> I was there for a while, awesome. but it was, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it, but it, that was good work. Cause it's, it's just, you know, you get all the rights and privileges, but you don't get all the, the headaches too, but it sure. was, uh, it was good training and it was good experiences, but I wasn't stuck. How do you rate your staying. overall headquarter experience? I would rate it in what? Like, uh, well, okay. Yeah. So like, eight, so like, okay. Eight, so eight, if you, if you look at the scope of your career for 20 plus years, um, you know, from a scale of one to 10, where one is like, why did I do this? This was the dumbest decision I've ever made to 10 being, I wish I'd started at this place on day one and been here my whole career. Where are you in that range? I was about a seven. That's pretty good. I, I would say you probably, you are, I'm not going to say there's a lot of people that would maybe rate it much higher than that. Cause, and I, part of it, let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase that completely. Part of that is because it depends on who your leadership is. And if you enjoy the job you're doing. Cause you can get stuck. Right. As you know, you can get stuck in, in jobs at headquarters. They're like, Oh, how do I get at like inspection division? Let's take inspection division as the perfect example. I'm assuming you right. never went through an inspection division because if you had, you would just, your answer would have been three because <laughs> inspection division automatically lowers that rating by three points, just regardless by itself. Right. So, um, but every, but I loved working in the cyber division. I liked working in the counterintelligence division for the most part, but it sounds like, like your, your arc was, sounded very rewarding the whole time through. I'm assuming you had periods where you're like, you know, how do I get out of this area? But seems like, right. Uh, and when did you come to Huntsville? So you ended up in Huntsville. How did, did, um, was that, that was towards the end, obviously. How long were you, did you, were you here before you retired? Um, I was TDY here summer of 19. Mm. And then I ended up going back to Northern Virginia to, to settle out the house, so to speak. Um, my wife was also, it, yeah, was also a, a SSA at the time. And she actually, ironically, she got the, she got the job that I was TY to. <laughs> so, um, I was, uh, we moved down here in October of 19 and then I retired November of 20. Okay. So, so yeah, it's yeah. going on a year and a half. Nice. Um, if you were to, if a younger agent that you knew who was still in the bureau called and asked you about going to headquarters, what would you tell them? I would tell them to do it, provided a couple of caveats. One, they should have at least seven or eight years of investigative street time. And that is, that um, would be minimum. Probably, yeah, it would definitely be minimum. And it would probably, my, my, <clears throat> I would probably weigh what their past experiences were. If they were a policeman or something to that equivalent, I would probably cut them some slack and say, yeah, sure. seven years maybe, but probably more like 10 or 11. Yeah. Like I was 12 years in when I went and it was, but it was something that I would tell them to do it, but I would, I would encourage them heavily to do their time and get out. Right. If you stay too long, 
you you begin to sort of you get so rooted in that you can't you you can't get out so the best metaphor i can think of is once you get to headquarters you start digging a hole and it's it it's slow at first but the longer you're there the faster you dig and the deeper of course it is and then you get to the point where some you just can't get out because I, I i knew a lot i knew a few guys that that wanted to get out but couldn't get out because they've been there too long because you lose your relevance essentially and you lose your investigative edge or at least right. its perception now if you've been in headquarters 10 years and, and you try to go back to between between ctd and cyber did you go back out to the field for a couple of years I did not. Okay. So your last several years were, 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 were that. So, but it sounds, but, but you, you made clearly made the most of it and made great decisions as far as like moving from CTD to cyber, um, mm -hmm. especially cause cyber is always in need of good leadership because it's just such a small pool of cyber people who understand cyber. I mean, even, I mean, you look, you look at these days at the people running cyber division and, it's still, I mean, I don't know if they developed the strategy yet as far as what they plan to do. Now, there's people working there that are very good at what they do, help the offices mm -hmm. like they're supposed to. But once you get past the section chief level, it's it seems like slim pickings. But that's really everything in the Bureau, really. Agreed. And it's it's mostly because I don't think cyber division, well, cyber division has not been a division long enough for the experienced cyber agent to matriculate up into those positions well, 20 years it's, it's 20 years this year yeah but then you have but then you have <laughs> like some asacs that move up or section chiefs and they might have you know been a supervisor on a on a cyber squad that doesn't right. mean they've taken the, the level yeah, of training sure sure that yeah. they have yeah and, but it's you know and it's the the and i i understand that some some of the executive management got there because they wanted to be there, but you know, others are there to, to check the box. Well, they're there, okay. they're there so they can say, Hey, I was a cyber division DAD. Right. Please hire me for $400,000 to be your risk management officer right. or whatever. So That's tons correct. Of that. and, when I see, know, and I'm going to, I'm going to name drop here. When I see Sean Joyce and talking about his cyber expertise, I just giggle at this point because sure. You can turn on a computer. That might be it. But what do I know? Yeah. Yeah, Sean Joyce definitely. I wouldn't say he's may have learned some things here and there, but sure. he definitely wasn't a rank and file down in the trenches cyber guy. But you know, mm -hmm. at that level, maybe they're more management centric. But sure, sure, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, necessarily you don't right. And in some, in a lot of cases, you don't need a guy to program your program your network. You just need someone to lead people, and that is one thing right. the FBI does do very well is it does train people how to lead. Now it trains some of them how to lead badly, but does train a lot of them how to lead well true, true but it's uh you know it's the cyber division does the best they can with what they have that's a much great, like any mm -hmm. other government agency you know they're all stealing from the same pool of people there's a as you know a horrific shortage of <laughs> cybersecurity personnel across mm -hmm. the country and across the globe so the bureau is is siphoning off the same applicant pool and they're they got their hands tied from the get-go because they, they can't pay yep the government can't pay what private sector can and you know a lot of people use the government as a stepping stone to the next level of their career sure for and i get that i get that but it's and it's it's something that i'm not i'm i'm not sure that the fbi will ever be able to 
get ahead of. You know, I've met a lot of cyber people, obviously, um, that have come into the FBI and they do it for a variety of reasons. Some openly admit I'm here for three, four, five years to get, you know, my chops under, <clears throat> get my chops done and then I'm out. Or others are here for the mission, mm -hmm. you know, fight the good fight and help the country defend itself. And some people are right in the middle, you know, yep. but it's, um, it's, it's like I said, doing the best they can with what they have. And, um, considering where they were and where they are, they've come a long way. And, you know, it's, it's my hope, not only for the FBI, but for the American people that the Bureau will adapt faster to the threats as they begin to change and mature. And they're able to do better with Intel sharing and partnerships because there's still a lot of stove piping. Sure. Um, in the government in general, which is bewildering to me, considering 9-11 was supposed to, the yeah. Patriot Act was supposed to change that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'll get that. The rank and file do get along really well. It's the it's yes, upper management that seems to have the issues, but that's a discussion for another day. Well, Ed, thanks so much for coming on to talk. I appreciate your insights. It was great, and we will talk again soon. Yeah, no, thank you. I had a, had a great time. All right. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Take care.